Take your Bible to the book of Luke. Be in chapter 18 this morning. Uh, Sometimes uh, in a message I like to delve very deep into a a passage of Scripture. I get into trouble when I get very lengthy passages of Scripture. I get into trouble because I keep you longer than I should. The good news is today though, the clock says 1019. So I have an hour and 40 minutes to preach. What a blessing it is that today I chose a long sermon on this kind of day. But just kidding. Uh, We will cover quite a bit of Scripture. But the, what that does is it doesn't allow us to delve very deep into the, the particular unique things about a, a passage. But there's an overall concept that I want to get across to you this morning. I believe it's very biblical. I believe it comes from God's Word. And uh, it, it, in a sense, it comes from my upbringing uh, living in my dad's house. At my house, when I was growing up, it wasn't really sports that were on TV, and at the time, it wasn't really news channels that were on TV. The thing that found itself on during the evenings when our family was gathered around the television was Westerns. Amen. 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 The older, the better. Yes. Gunsmoke. As many scriptural and typical things about it. The Lone Ranger, my dad would tell me stories of he and his youth as he would gather around the radio there to listen to the, the radio broadcasts of the Lone Ranger. I know all about those westerns, that uh, uh, the Clint Eastwood westerns. Man, I tell you what, what that guy can do with an axe handle. We just need some soldiers like that. Amen. I can't get too far into this because I think I'll start quoting rated R uh, westerns. But my dad was quick draw on the changer when things got rough. Amen. But one of the westerns that I became familiar with was the good, the bad. And okay, well, most of you already know. Uh, I can tell. I got to the good and all of you are like, yep, been there, seen that. Very good. And that's the idea this morning. The sermon's title is this, the good, the bad, And the ugly. You see, religion is not the solution to man's greatest needs. One day there was a man who was known as a kind of braggadocious businessman. He was known for the in the community for being a rough and coarse man. And he somewhat tried to be a spiritual man and He encountered Mark Twain one day and he was trying to impress him with his spirituality. And he came to Mark Twain and said that one of the main goals of his life was to one day visit the Holy Land, climb the top to Mount Sinai, and read the Ten Commandments aloud. Mark Twain, unimpressed with this man's religion, said, I have a better idea. Why don't you stay in Boston and just try to keep them? The problem with so many religious people is not that they claim to be religious. It is that their religion does not seem to have changed them at all. That's the problem in the world today. And often when Jesus wanted to display a sort of pseudo-Christianity, a a fake 
inauthentic brand of religion, he would use the most religious people to demonstrate that. He would talk about people who had given their lives to maintain and upkeep a sort of systematic religion. And man, they were diligent in doing so, but this religion resulted in emptiness. Religion in the Bible is not a term frequently used, and that may surprise many of you. In fact, in the New Testament, I can only find the usages of religion or religious about five times. Two of those indicate that it is primarily in the context of the Jews' religion, meaning not the religion that God gave. So three of them are other contexts, and two of them are found in this passage in James chapter 1. James says this in verse 26, If any man among you seem to be religious. Don't miss what he's saying here. If any man seems to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. James uses the word religion three times in two verses. And he says, if any man seemed to be religious, he probably isn't. And there is a such thing as pure and undefiled religion. Meaning, James says, there is a religion that is not of God, and there is a religion that is. See, most people, I think, would probably have a hard time to describe the difference between the religion that God has given us and religion that is so often lived out in front of us. One poll taken in 2019 still said that some 65% of adult Americans claim to be religious. And yet you just look at the country. Look at the state of our country and some of the battles that are being litigated in our courts. And some of the philosophies that are being taught in our institutions. And you say, a majority of those people are religious? See, we're, we're now having trouble defining what makes up a godly home. Uh, America is trying to undermine the institution of the nuclear family unit. One father made by a man, one mother made by a woman, and having children, and this is a blessed thing, and yet our country is undermining it at its very core. We're placing less value on human life than ever before. Especially those who are the most vulnerable. We want to kill them in the womb or on their way to the grave, but we don't value those that have nothing to offer in our society. Look, you don't value life based upon what life has to give. You value life because life has been created in the image of our Creator. That's why the Bible says that the Lord hates hands that shed innocent blood. That's why pure religion is visiting the afflicted and the widows and the fatherless. Those are the people that need pure religion more than anybody else. Our country is on a downward spiral away from God. We have a total gender confusion. God, The Bible says that God created male and female, created He them. And yet our country can't even get that right. 
misgender confusion is as a result of the sexual delusion our, our society and our country are in. This may surprise you, but the most visited websites on the, on the internet generally are not Google and Yahoo. Gender confusion and sexual delusion and all of these things have, are just markers of a society running roughshod away from God. And yet, we live in a religious society. Religion isn't the answer. Religion hasn't fixed America's problems, and listen to me, religion won't fix your problems. How much has your religion changed you? This morning in our scripture, we find three men. And these three men are, have all different uh, interactions with religion. They're all involved in religion at varying degrees. And religion has been a major part in some of their lives and not so major of a part in other of their lives. And this religion has resulted in what I am defining as the good, the bad, and the ugly. Let's take a look at the ugly this morning. Number one, the ugly. And if you wanted to write out beside it, we find in verses number 9 through 14, a self-righteous churchgoer. Verse 9, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican, that is a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I want to just draw your attention to something. We don't have time to spend much on it this morning, but look what the Bible says. This Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. You know how far that prayer got? No further than he could hear himself. He wasn't praying to God. He was praying to himself because this man was his God. This man prayed a prayer. I thank you that I'm not like everybody else, all these wicked sinners and and vile people. And I thank you that I'm not like that guy standing over there outside the temple, that publican who's not worthy to come in. He says in verse 12, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not, so, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be Exalted. We find what we know as the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in each of these stories, we will find a conflict that is presented to us and a counterpart that somewhat serves as a contradiction to it or the opposite of. This man's conflict is his religion had resulted in a great deal of pride in his life. And he's a very committed man. In fact, there's some indications that this man was very committed to the Lord. The Bible says in verse number uh, uh, 11 or verse 12, I fast twice in the week. Now this is above and beyond anything that God asked His people to do. 
God requested, or commanded rather, that His people would fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. That was the requirement. But this man says, oh, all those other sinners, they may only do the minimum requirement of the law, but I fast twice a week. told somebody the other day, they said they were fasting. I said, I fast as well. I fast from between breakfast to lunch. I take a short sabbatical around lunchtime. And then from lunch to dinner, I I fast during that time as well. This man was proud of his ability to fast. He was a very spiritual man. He was a very committed man. Notice what he says in verse 12 as well. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now this seemed to be a philosophy of the Pharisees and Jesus condemned them for it. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said these words, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, listen, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. What's he talking about? These Pharisees, if they had a garden, they would go out into the garden and they would count the leaves on their plants and they would trim off the leaves of their plants and bring in a tenth, a tithe, to the temple. They would sort through their their seeds that their plants would produce and they would sort through them and they'd say, "One uh, one for God, nine for me. One for God, nine for me. And they were incredibly committed to keeping the law in this sense. But Jesus says this, You tithe off mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier of the matters of the law. And He says this, He makes somewhat of a funny caricature of these men. He says, ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, oftentimes when their wine would be fermenting, it would be stored. During that fermentation process, gnats would be attracted to it. Those gnats would then sometimes get in the wine as it fermented. Then what the Pharisees would do, because it was unclean to eat or consume that gnat, They would bring their wine and they would pour it through a strainer to make sure that none of the gnats were in their drink when they drank it. You strain at a gnat, and then Jesus says, and swallow a camel. So here is the caricature. The idea is this man is in his kitchen with his wine bottles pouring the wine through a strainer to make sure that he doesn't transgress the law at any point. He doesn't want to swallow a gnat, so he's pouring the the wine through the strainer so that he might have a perfectly maintained wine. And the caricature is this, that outside of this man's house, on the barbecue, he has a camel prime rib waiting to eat right after he gets done straining his wine. By the way, camels were unclean as well. It's actually a comedy. Jesus says, you take so much time to strain the net and you're cooking a camel. This man was extremely proud at his commitment and his zeal towards the law. And his conflict was that this stringent adherence to his religion had lifted his heart up in pride. God doesn't like pride. God hates pride. In fact, what we find is that God so secured your salvation apart from your own works. He did this because, he says in Ephesians 2, 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And he puts this little uh, indentation on it. He says, not of works, lest any man should boast. If one man could get into heaven by earning it, we'd never hear the end of it. So all of us must come to God in humility, not in pride, not lifted up, but broken down. We must accept God in humility. And that's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely through His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, Paul then goes on to conclude this, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. If we all get to Jesus by coming to Him in humility, having to admit just how bad of a sinner we are, then God says, through the Apostle Paul, Who has the right to boast in God's presence? And the answer is, none of us. One of the favorite songs of our choir is, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And the Bible teaches that we're all sinners, lost and undone before God. And if it were not for His grace and His mercy that He bestowed freely upon us, we would have no right to go to heaven. But He offered it to us, not because we had something to offer, and not because we were good, but because He is good and He loves us. And in spite of our failures, we get to go to heaven because of His grace. See, we, like this like this Pharisee, have the temptation to be lifted up because we come to church on Sunday. To be lifted up in pride because we tie our necktie with a double Windsor knot. To be lifted up in pride because we only use a piano. Because we, we have religion the right way. Dear friend, there is no religion the right way unless it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. This man had a conflict in his life. His pride had so blinded him to his desperate need for God. That's why God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He makes little shepherd boys overthrow giants. He takes unnoteworthy and unsung heroes and does great things with them. Why? Because God hates boasting and God hates pride. And the Bible goes so far as to say, He does this that no flesh should glory in His presence. God doesn't like pride. In fact, He hates it. The Bible says in Proverbs, These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination. You know what the first one on the list is? A proud look. Oh, God hates pride. My friend, we ought to be careful that a a sense of pride doesn't begin to take root in our heart. What have I gotten but what I've received? Grace hath bestowed it since I have believed. Jesus Christ was gracious to us. Sometimes we come to God and we say, well, God kind of got lucky when He got me. No, no, dear friend, you got lucky that God loved you. This man was lifted up in pride. God hates pride. You know why God hates pride? Because pride was a result of the first sin in the Bible and every other sin in the Bible. Satan lifted his heart up in pride. He said, I will ascend above God and I will exalt uh, my throne above the stars of heaven and I will sit upon the mountain of the congregation in the, north of, in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Five times he says the words, I will, I will, I will. It ought not surprise us that the heart of the word pride is the letter I. It ought not surprise us at all. God hates pride. 
Because when pride enters into a person's heart, we become blind to our desperate need for God. Pride. And this man is presented as having a counterpart. See, his conflict is his heart was lifted up by pride because of his religion. But the counterpart is this publican, a tax collector, deemed as the worst of society, a a traitor to the Jews and an outcast from the Romans, excommunicated from his religion. He was not welcome in the temple. Yet this man came, and the Bible says, this publican, verse 13, standing afar off, would not lift up so much his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. What we find is holy, uh, holiness is not the way to God. Humility is. Holiness is a result of knowing God. Humility is the way that you get to know Him. This man came to God, and, and by the way, publicans, by and large, were a reprobate kind of people. There was one man in, in history that was said to have been an honest publican. They built a statue to him because he was the only one they could find. The chances are, this man was a wicked sinner. The chances are this man felt the weight of his sin. And so he stands outside the temple beating his chest saying, God, I'm not worthy. God, I'm a sinner. God, I'm undone before you. And Jesus says, this man received mercy. You know why? Because only one of the men asked for mercy. The man that asked for mercy received mercy. The man that didn't need mercy didn't get it. Religion doesn't fix all of our problems. You know what religion does? Religion produces a people believe in prayer but have no need to pray. Religion says that prayer works, but a religious people says, I have no need to pray. Religion produces a people that know of mercy but request none of it because they need none of it. Religion produces a people that have a head knowledge of what grace is but... It produces a people that never seek daily God's grace to help them through life because they're making it fine on their own. Religion is not the answer. Humbling yourself before the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time is. This man is the ugly. He's a self-righteous churchgoer. I want you to see not only the ugly, but secondly, I want you to see the bad this morning. And this man we could call a soul-searching answer-seeker. This man, too, was quite acquainted with religion. Notice in verse 18, the Bible says, And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? If you underline in your Bible, you may just choose to underline the words, What shall I do? Because that's really the heart of this man. What shall I do? What can I do? What shall I do that I to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one, that is God. And verse 19 gives us an indication that this man at least was willing to recognize Jesus as being the Son of God. Because you don't call others good in this society. Good is a title reserved only for God. You did not come to rabbis or teachers and say, You're a good teacher, because that is a title exclusive 
to God. I believe that this man was willing to recognize Jesus as God. I do not believe he was willing to follow him as God. And there's a big difference. Notice what the Bible goes on to say. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. I can tell you verse 21 makes him significantly better of a human being than I am. Verse 22, now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And when he heard this... He was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. This is the story of the rich young ruler. Through the compilation of the different gospel narratives on this particular story, we find out that he is a rich young man, that he is a young man, and that he is a ruler. He is of some authority. He had everything that the world says we need to be happy. He had his youth. You know what I've noticed? Uh, A lot of times people that are wealthy tend to be older. They don't don't have their health anymore to uh, enjoy the pleasures of youth. Someone said you spend all your health trying to get your wealth and then you spend all your wealth trying to keep your health. That's so true. But this man had his wealth in his youth. Not only did he have youth and he had wealth, he had authority. He was revered. He he was a success. People looked up to him. He was the boss. Nobody told this young man what to do. But his conflict is this. All his work and all his energy and all his religion left him empty. The other man came to Jesus completely full of himself. Filled to the brim. <laughs> I don't need anybody else. I thank thee that I am not like this publican, no, these extortioners and all these wicked people. I thank thee. That man came full. This man came searching. Because he knew that his religion did not fulfill the needs of his heart. And not only did his religion not meet it, but all that the world said he needed to be happy, he had and he wasn't happy. So he came to Jesus and said, What shall I do? There's got to be more than this. There's got to be more to life than all that I have. And if you'll study this passage out, it's quite unique what Jesus mentions and what He does not. Uh, This is a pretty easy Bible class and Bible question, so let me ask you, how many original commandments are there? Everybody just kind of think, ready, go. Very good. Okay, half the audience got it. And the rest of us, there are ten. Okay, the ten commandments. Very good. If you didn't learn anything this morning, you learned that there are ten commandments. Jesus only quotes five. Huh. And I always just thought it was coincidental. Look in verse 20. It was just coincidental as to the ones that he quoted. Verse 20. Well, thou knowest the commandments. Uh, here's the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Alright? Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and mother. Jesus now has mentioned number 5 through 9 of the Ten Commandments. 
the Jesus broke the commandments down in this. This is a quick little lesson. Most of you probably already know this, but it's a, maybe some of you don't. The law falls into one of two categories, even the original Ten Commandments. Jesus said that the first and great commandment is this, that you would love the Lord thy God. That's number one, loving God. The second is this, it's likened to the first, but it's that you would love your neighbor as yourself. So all the law falls into one of two categories, your relationship with God or your relationship with man. Now, in the Ten Commandments, the first four have to do with our relationship with God. Those commandments are, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The second commandment, Thou shalt not make any graven images. Number three, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And number four, Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. All of those are our relationship with God. Number five is honor thy father and mother. And then six, seven, eight, and nine, those are don't commit adultery, do not kill, those commandments that Jesus mentions. So Jesus doesn't mention the first four, which have to do with our relationship with God, and he doesn't mention the tenth one, which is thou shalt not covet. Why did he choose those five? I would suggest to you, because it reveals to us this man's major problem. He had two of them. Number one, he didn't have a relationship with God. Idolatry is no thing if you don't know God. Keeping the Sabbath day holy is not an important thing if you don't know why you're keeping it holy. Uh, Making sure that you put a high esteem on God's name and not taking it in vain is not important to the sinner because they don't know God, so they don't know His highness, they don't know His holiness, and so there's no reason for them to value His name. The first four deal with our relationship with God. Jesus doesn't mention this to these men because the man didn't have a relationship with God. And the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, Jesus omits. Why? Because that was the guy's problem. Why did he leave Jesus? Why did he go away very sorrowful? Because he had great riches. Great wealth. He had coveted all these things and he had gotten all these things. And so he was filled with covetousness. What we realize about this young man is, religion and all that the world has to offer will leave you feeling empty. The Lord designed you with a hole that only can be filled by Him in your soul. It's perfect. Like, you know those toddler puzzles? You have the triangle hole and the star hole and the square hole. And you can't put the other shapes in the different holes. God designed you with a unique hole in your heart. And it can only be filled by Him. Now, here's what people do. They try to get the next toy to fill that hole. And it doesn't work. They try to get another relationship to fill that hole, and it doesn't work. They try to find that, fill that hole at the bottom of a beer bottle, and it doesn't work. And then they start to try drugs, and that doesn't work. And they try all these things, and none of them satisfy the soul, because there's only one thing that can fill that void in their soul. This man comes to Jesus with an obvious problem. Lord, I know there's more. I've kept the law to the best of my ability. I've tried to do right. But what can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, go sell everything you have. 
Jesus was not saying that the way to heaven is by selling everything you have. He was now in this moment making real the tenth commandment to this young man. He was using the tenth commandment as an object lesson. He wasn't just going to quote it to him. He was like, here's what it looks like. Would you be willing to sell all that you have to follow me? This man wasn't willing and so he wasn't, will- wasn't able to meet Jesus and fill that hole in his soul. The counterpart to this man is the disciples. You say, what do you mean? Notice this in verse 28. Then Peter said, lo, we have left all and followed thee. This comes right on the hills of Jesus' teaching about how difficult it is for rich men to be saved. And that was a hard lesson for many of them to hear because in that day, wealth and prosperity was viewed as favor from God. And so when they said rich men can't go to heaven, they thought rich men were the people that had the relationship with God. They said if a rich man can't do it, who can? Jesus now tells these disciples, well, uh, uh, with men this is impossible, with God all things are impossible. And the lesson resonated with Peter so much so that he says, Lord... That's why you asked us to leave everything. We have done what you asked this young man to do. We have left all and followed you. What you realize quickly is this young man, the rich young ruler, was a fan of Jesus while the disciples were following Jesus. And there's a big difference between the two. Have you ever considered how radical it must have been for Jesus to teach His disciples for them to take up their cross and follow Him? Sometimes I think we get a little blurry on the timeline here. Jesus had not yet died on the cross. They did not know what it was for Him to humble Himself and and willingly die for the sins of mankind. They did not know what it was for Him to not even testify on His own behalf. Uh, Are you the King of the Jews? Are you the Son of God? He wouldn't answer Pilate these questions. And so they knew nothing about what it was to humble, for Jesus to humble Himself and carry the cross. And all the time Jesus is just bringing this concept up. Hey guys, unless you're willing to pick up your cross and carry it and follow Me, you are not worthy of Me. The cross, there is no other meaning for the word that I can find. It's not hidden in the language. It's not like, well, pick up your burden. The cross is the instrument of execution. There is no other meaning. Jesus was saying, pick up your electric chair and follow me. And yet I can just imagine these men would have such a hard time understanding what that meant. Until the day when they saw Jesus die on the cross. And said, oh, we're going to have to pick up that kind of cross? We're going to have to carry it up the hill to Golgotha? We're going to have to be mocked and beaten and scourged. We're going to have to do that. And Jesus says, He that's not willing to pick up that cross is not worthy of Me. You want to know what the most unpopular message in American Christianity today is? Jesus is not the most unpopular message. Because what our society teaches, what our culture teaches is Jesus. It's not the biblical Jesus. The most unpopular message in Christianity today is that following Christ may actually cost you something. That in order to follow a Savior that died for you, you might be be required to live for Him. 
We don't want to pick up our crosses. We wear them as trinkets around our neck. We adorn ourselves with them. We put them on the bumper stickers that we have. We put them in our windows to let everybody know just how much of a Jesus follower we are. Jesus wasn't talking about wearing a cross. He was talking about bearing a cross. He was saying it may cost you something to be a follower of me. And to this young man, who came to Jesus knowing that he was unsaved, knowing that he didn't have eternal life, when Jesus says, are you willing to pick up your cross? The young man says, that cross is too heavy for me to, for me to bear. I am not willing to go that far with you. This man is a picture of religion leaving people empty and broken. Searching at the end of their life why what something that promised to fulfill left them longing still. So we have a picture of the ugly. A self-righteous churchgoer. We have a picture of the bad. A soul-searching answer seeker. And then number three, we have a picture of the good. A straightforward redemption story. Look in verse number 35. And it came to pass that as he was come nigh unto Jericho... A certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. And hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. A blind man, he doesn't know what's going on. He just hears the commotion, the crowd growing louder, the excitement. He can feel it, but he can't see it. He can hear it, but he can't see it. Verse 37, And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passed by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. The son of David is a messianic title. This man was claiming that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of God, the one that would be sent from the Lord. He cried saying, Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me. Verse 39, and they which went before him uh, rebuked him that he should hold his peace. Ah, shut up. You You don't have any right to claim Jesus. He's busy. He don't have time for you. But he cried so much the more, Now, Son of David, Messiah, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him. And when he was come near, he asked him, saying, What wilt thou thou that I shall do unto thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Jesus said unto him, Receive thy sight. Thy faith hath saved thee. And immediately he received his sight. Notice these next three words. And followed him. Glorifying God. And all the people when they saw it gave praise unto God. This story is known as the story of blind Bartimaeus. We learn in Mark chapter 10 this man's name. But his conflict is this. He could not go to Jesus. Don't miss this. One man went to the temple to pray to God, couldn't find Him. Another man came to Jesus, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Both of these men came to Christ, but they came to God on their own terms. Here's a blind man, incapable of his own to follow after God. Incapable to seek after Him. In fact, when Jesus starts to pass by, He doesn't even know who it is. So He says, who is this? What's the commotion? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth has come by. And He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't pause. He says, I've been praying this day would come. Jesus, the Son of David, have mercy on me. This man's conflict is he could not go to God. And so the great solution of the Bible is God came to him. 
And though everybody in the crowd said, Oh, you don't need to bother him. You're not worth his time. He wouldn't let that bother him. He wouldn't let that stop him. He said, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Why did he cry that? In our chapter, two men receive mercy. You know why? Because two men ask for mercy. You come to God and you beg for His mercy. You come to God in humility. You don't go on your own terms. You don't go to Him and say, Well, I thank you that I'm not like everybody else. Or, Lord, what can I do that I might gain entrance into heaven? You come to God on His terms and you say, I know I'm not worthy. I know I'm not capable. So I sit like the blind beggar by the wayside, crying out for mercy. And Jesus met him with mercy. This man's conflict was he couldn't go to Jesus. I like the old song that says, When I could not go to where you were, he came to me. The picture of salvation is that all of us are running headlong away from God as quickly as we can. There is none that doeth good. There is none that is righteous. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all together become unprofitable. They are all gone out of the way. We all ran away from God. We were children of wrath, following after the God of this world, Satan, serving the lusts of our flesh. And yet He came to me. In that moment in time when I humbled myself and said, Dear God, I know that if I were to die today, I would split hell wide open. I received mercy. You know why? Not because I earned it. Not because I could deserve it. But because I asked for it. He came to me. And that's his conflict. He couldn't go to Jesus, but his counterpart is the crowd. In this situation, it's a whole group of people that are following Jesus. They want to hear what He has to say. They want to see what He can do. They want to be around Jesus, but they do not want to follow Him. You know how I know that? Because in just a week, in one week, the same crowd that is telling this man to stop crying out to Jesus is the very same crowd who in just a week will be crying out to Jesus for His crucifixion. Crucify Him! Crucify Him! We have no king but Caesar. Listen, if you don't cry out to Jesus, you'll be crying to Jesus one day. Jesus offers mercy in this day, in this hour. You know what the wisdom of blind Bartimaeus was? Chances are Jesus would never pass by this way again. This was his one chance encounter with God, and he took full advantage of it. So many people assume they have tomorrow. So many people say, yeah, you know what, but I'll really put off serving God until I got my retirement plan. When the kids are out of the house, we don't have so many baseball games. I'll really put off serving God until that day. Jesus says, behold, today is the the day of salvation. Now is the time. I'm calling you now. Respond now. Last year, the president came to our area think he was opening a Levi's factory or something out in Keene, if I'm not mistaken. It was funny, in the three weeks leading up to that event, there were a bunch of planes. There was more air traffic than normal. And uh, we would look up and we would see a plane. It was funny, we'd just be driving around town or maybe we were at our house and we could hear a plane. Or we we could hear the planes flying over. And uh, our whole family would run outside to see what plane it was. 
We're like, oh, nope, that's just Southwest Airlines. Nobody cares about them, but they do have free bag fares, so that's good. Uh, but, you know, we would, every plane, we'd be driving down the road, and my kids would say, there's a plane, is that the one the president's in? Our house just happens to be kind of in the flight path. And uh, the day when our president was uh, actually in Keene, we heard uh, a lot more noise than normal of a plane flying over. We came outside, my whole family standing around, looking up. I guess it was Air Force One flying over or whatever it was. I'm sure some of you military guys can help me out with that later. But it was accompanied by two other aircrafts. I mean, we said, there's the president. For three weeks we looked forward to seeing the president. A lot of people miss their encounter with God when He starts to call on their heart, when He starts to tug on their heart strings. He says, today is the day of salvation. I am knocking on your heart's door today. Come to me in humility. Receive me as your Savior. And yet so many people leave places just like the one we're in today, not accepting His free gift of salvation. Putting it off tomorrow. You know what the Bible says? Thou knowest not what tomorrow may bring. You never know what tomorrow's gonna ha- what, what's going to happen tomorrow. You never have, you're not promised tomorrow. You must be sure that if God is knocking on your heart, that you would receive Him today. Years ago, when I was 12 years old, I received Christ as my Savior. Preacher and I have discussions about the direction that Christianity is heading. We have discussions about bad trends that we notice, things that are becoming detrimental to society. I will tell you the number one problem in churches on Sunday morning now, I'll tell you, is people are, are, are not moving when the gospel is preached. I hear stories, I see videos of, of crusades and sermons preached. Dad, I, I attended a, revi- a, a meeting with my dad where he preached the gospel. Literally the sermon was this. The ABCs of salvation. Admit you're, a sa- uh, admit you're a sinner. Believe in Christ. Confess Him as Lord. That's it. ABCs of salvation. It was 15 minutes. On that day, 113 people moved forward and accepted Christ as Savior. And yet today, those kind of movements have stopped. Gospel messages are preached, and here's what I hear after, Brother Andrew. I don't know how anybody couldn't, how anybody in that room that could be lost didn't move at that. And to be honest with you, I don't know the reason, but I will tell you, when I was 12 years old, I fought the battle that every person fights in that moment. The piano began to play. The singer began to sing. The preacher extended the invitation. He says, if today you know that you're on your way to hell and you're not a child of God, would you come forward and receive Him today? And I stayed in my pew. I literally sat on the end of the pew and no less than four or five times, my mind told my feet to move, but my feet did not move. I would 
I was doing this, I was saying, well, I know, I know there was a day and time when I thought I said some words, but yet the Holy Spirit of God began to tug on my heart and tell me that I wasn't saved and told me that if I was to die at that moment, I'd split hell wide open. And I thought to myself, no, I know. I said a prayer. I know a time. I, I'm a religious person. And religion got me no closer to heaven than where I was standing there in Lindell, Texas. And finally, some seven verses into the invitation, I finally broke down and I came forward I met my youth pastor and I, he said what do you need Andrew he was like not even expecting me to move forward he thought I was coming up to ask for a dollar for a coke then I said I'm not saved and I need to know Jesus we went down to the back aisle and I, I got saved there at Lindell Texas it was a hard time to move and it's one of the more difficult battles I've ever fought but friend let me tell you it's been worth it all In just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation and the gospel has been preached. You cannot get to heaven on your own. You need a Savior. You don't come to Jesus and say, well, I'm religious. I know my Bible. I've been a Sunday school teacher. I've attended church my whole life. That's not the way to God. You come to God through His dear Son, Jesus Christ. just a moment, we'll have a time of invitation. And my prayer all day today and even now is this. God, don't let someone stay in a pew that knows they're lost. Won't you come forward and let us take God's Word and show you how you can know you have eternal life. Religion failed two of these men, but a relationship with Jesus Christ was the greatest day of blind Bartimaeus' life.